0: This week, the CIA director reported having Havana Syndrome in Cuba, Florida GOP texts revealed the new election law was created with political gain in mind, and conditions at the southern border worsen. My name's Noah Huey, and this is Under the Stars. Welcome to a new week, everyone. This week was, needless to say, a bad week to be President Biden. And we're about to go into a very many news topics that go into why this week was a bad week to be President Biden, as well as the Democrats. Uh, But before we do that, I'd like to start by reminding you to follow my Instagram. That's at Noah. That's at H-E-G-H-U-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Noah. You can also support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. It'd be appreciated. But other than that, I'm not going to force you to. And I'm so glad I said that because I had to remember to turn my phone off. Anyways, our first piece of news. The CIA director reported having Havana syndrome in Cuba. The second time that that's happened, not a second time, but another time that's happened, uh, resurfacing the question of who's responsible in this kind of new age of, um, of microwave technology um, warfare against countries. Um, this is from MBS News. A CIA official reported symptoms consistent with so-called Havana Syndrome, a mysterious affliction that has struck diplomats, spies, and other government workers at home and abroad. Two sources familiar with the matter said Monday. The unidentified employee was traveling with, a, with CIA Director William Burns during a trip to India this month. The employee was immediately tested as part of a protocol the CIA established to deal with mysterious brain symptoms typically associated with Havana Syndrome and is receiving medical treatment, the sources said. It is, the largest, it is the latest reported case of a U.S. government employee reporting sim- symptoms associated with the mysterious ailment. Havana syndrome first came into public view in 2017 after U.S. diplomats and other government workers stationed in Cuba reported feeling unusual physical sensations after hearing strange high and low-pitched sounds. U.S. government employees have also reported cases in China and in the Washington, D.C. area. Late last month, at least two U.S. diplomats were medically evacuated from Vietnam after Havana syndrome incidents were reported in the capital city, Hanoi, ahead of Vice President president kamala harris's arrival quote the health and well-being of american public servants is one is of paramount importance to the administration we take extremely seriously any report by our personnel uh, of an of an anomalous health incident a senior administration official said monday night it is a top priority for the u.s government to determine the cause of these incidents as quickly as possible and we ensure and that we ensure ensure any affected individuals get the care they need end quote Many people who have experienced Havana Syndrome report experience vertigo, dizziness, fatigue, nausea, and intense headaches. Some describe it as being hit by an invisible blast wave. Some have no longer been able to work. The Indian incident has raised questions about whether a foreign adversary has intentionally targeted the CIA's director's staff, but the sources said the agency is unclear what exactly could have caused it. The case is one of a number of new incidents in recent months involving CIA personnel who have experienced what U.S. officials call anomalous health incidents, the source said. a spokeswoman declined to confirm the case in India, but said the U.S. government agency are taking every incident seriously. So, and first of all, I got that news headline wrong about the director reporting having it. It's the director's team member. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Um, So... What's so interesting about the about this incidence of Havana Syndrome is that we truly have no other information on it other than what I just said. Like I'm not going to be able to say much about it, simply because we don't know what Havana Syndrome truly is, and we don't know who's responsible for it. Like I said, it, like they said, it was um, first reported in 2017, and I remember that. And at the time, it was sort of almost like an exceptionally terrifying idea. Um, because the the fact of the matter is, it most certainly is man-made, I'd have to say. I, I highly doubt, in any sense, that it is natural, given that it is specifically uh, targeting um, diplomats and uh, spies and other such government officials. Um, but the real question, the real issue this brings up, this Havana Syndrome, is kind of this new age of micro, microwave technology warfare. Uh, which, I guess warfare isn't the appropriate word to use here, but it's... Um, I I think it has some kind of standing, I would say, uh, the kind of effect it has on the future of um, not just U.S. diplomacy, but foreign relations between countries around the world. Um, because this has been reported everywhere. I, th- I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought there had been a case reported after someone went to Russia. And I actually did once see a... Um, I did once see uh, a former U.S. diplomat who had to retire, who no long, who now no longer works because of the fact that he has had Havana syndrome, and it has affected him so long term. The, um, I, I guess the real issue on this is that I, I, I feel personally that we really haven't. I don't know what information we've ever done. What, what what the investigation process looks like into the into the issue of this Havana Syndrome because this has been an issue since 2017, and I feel like the U.S. government has, inadequ- has inadequately responded to the the present threat that is Havana Syndrome and, and these Havana Syndrome-related attacks um, because, quite clearly, this is man-made. That's the most obvious statement you could make about this. Um, but the real issue is is truly that I feel it's, it's not... The government says it takes it seriously, and I believe that. Um, but I also feel like that there's not enough effort being put into this into this question, and um, I think that I think that raises not question. It raises more questions on top of the initial question of who did it, and then the the further um, question you'd have after that would be why. Because um, while you could say that they just don't like us, that's a very superfluous and kind of basic answer you could give to that question when there's a more complex I, I'd say um, uh, dichotomy to be made um, in in the in the question of why would anyone attack why would a government attack another government um, so in terms of this obviously we we should hope that the best to the those affected and and what I would urge is is that Congress kind of, sound the alarm on this, because, let's see, that's 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. That's been four years, and I feel that, that the efforts to look into this are either incredibly covert, which I could understand, but unless they—if they aren't covert, then the U.S. government's doing nothing to investigate it. So, I, I hope— that there is some kind of investigation, and, and be that so, I also would hope that um, they're making good progress, because otherwise, we're facing a threat from who knows where, because it's showing up all, all over the place, and it's affecting very uh, top-level officials, and it hasn't done anything like affect the president or the vice president to this point, but uh, should that happen to happen, then we're in trouble. Our next piece of news... Florida GOP texts reveal one of their new election laws was quite clearly for political gain. This is from Politico. Um, I've scrolled down halfway across the area. Tallahassee. Florida Republicans this spring insisted a continuous new election law curtailing access to ballot boxes was needed to prevent federal election fraud. It was not, they said, an attempt to gain a partisan advantage, but a raft on international email on, excuse me, but a raft of internal emails and text messages obtained by Politico show the law was drafted with the help of Republican Party with the Republican Party of Florida's top lawyer, and that the crackdown on mail-on-ballot requests was seen as a way for the GOP to erase the edge that Democrats had in mail-in voting during the 2020 election. The messages undercut the consistent argument made by Republicans that the new law was about preventing future election fraud. The law, labeled Jim Crow 2.0 by some Democrats, was passed at a strong urging of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis who signed the bill at an exclusive event aired by Fox News. It advanced even as local election officials, including Republicans, criticized the measure after running a a trouble-free election in 2020. One official went so far to call it a slap in the face, while one North Florida supervisor recently told DeSantis he was resigning at the end of the month. Uh, at the end of this month in part to oppose continuous changes in election laws. Florida was just one of several GOP controlled states that enacted voting restrictions in the aftermath of, of former President Donald Trump's loss and his uh, unsubstantiated claims about voter fraud, although it isn't as restrictive as laws passed in Georgia and Texas. When debating the bill in the wa- waning moments of the year's legislative session, Republican Party of Florida Chair State Senator Joe Gruders repeatedly said the bill would make it as easy as possible to vote and hard as possible to cheat. Yet in one remarkable exchange obtained by Politico, Gruters had led House Sponsor State Representative Blasey Ingagolia, I think is how it's pronounced, went back and forth over proposals to shorten how long mail-in ballot requests are uh, valid. Gruters defended a Senate proposal to cancel all existing mail-in ballot requests, saying that it would be devastating for Republicans to keep them valid heading into the 2022 election when DeSantis and other state GOP officials are up for re-election. More than 2.18, 2.18 million Democrats use mail-in ballots compared to 1.5 million Republicans voters. During the 2020 election, where Trump easily won Florida, but part of that was due to the ongoing pandemic, as Democrats strongly encouraged voters to uh, change their habits nationwide. We cannot make up ground. Trump campaign spent 10 million, could not cut down, could not cut down lead. Gruters wrote to Ingagolia, Inga who had been chair of the Republican Party before of Florida before Gr- Gruters. Gruters also said it would hurt the GOP in nonpartisan races, noting that our school board member got killed in a local race. That's a quote, by the way. Gruters this week filed legislation that would ask voters to make school board races partisan. The final election bill did not include a Senate proposal to cancel all requests. Instead, lawmakers voted to grandfather in existing requests. But over the protests of Democrats, the Republican lawmakers still shortened the time the requests would remain valid from two from two election cycles to one. When asked about the text messages, Gruters said... Quote, what I said in my text message was accurate. I think the failure to do a reset will have detrimental impact going forward, end quote. The emails and text messages obtained by Politico were handed over as part of an ongoing lawsuit by several groups, including the League of Women Voters in Florida, challenging the newly elected law, enacted law that would put in new restrictions on their collection of mail in ballots. And the use of, top, of drop boxes. The gra- the groups contend the new law illegally targets elderly and disabled voters as well as minority voters. The National Republican Committee and the National Republican Senatorial Committee are helping defend the measure. Um, the groups challenging the law asked for the records to be turned over as part of those, their preparation for trial. Political asked for copies of all records turned over by the House, Senate, and Governor's office. These records include legislative drafts that are usually shielded uh, uh, from disclosure. Included in the records were several million emails, but... Several, excuse me, several, several emails between Inga Golia and Ben Gibson, an attorney for the firm of Schutz & Bowen, who's been a chief counsel for the Republican Party of Florida for the last two election cycles. Gibson, an ally of DeSantis, who the governor appointed to the State Board of Education, has also represented the National Republicans in election-related lawsuits, including one challenging the new law. Gibson recommended several provisions that made their way into the final legislation, although not all the ideas he shared within Gogolia were included, such as one that would have given additional power to Florida's Secretary of State to investigate local election supervisors. At one point, he provided a lengthy side-by-side of House and Senate bills that recommended which provisions should be and which one should be jettisoned. And ingogolia downplayed his communications with Di- with Gibson. In a text message with Politico, ingogolia said, quote, I had an open-door policy and listened to everyone. Some ideas we took and many we were discarded. The legislature wrote this bill. Any suggestions otherwise is not accurate. Ultimately, I'm proud of what the Florida legislature passed, unquote. Ingegolia also brushed aside the back and forth with Gruters. He said he was, quote, quote, unquote, very clear from the beginning that allowing mail-in ballot requests would remain valid for two election cy- cycles, quote, unquote, was too long. Quote, I was on record for all this as well before any text message was received, and Gagolia said, this was a policy decision all along and had nothing to do with partisan reasons. End quote. Um, I think that's that's a good place to stop. Um, de- Democrats uh, criticized it, but that's to be expected. Um, in terms of, oh, well, is this law partisan? No, well, I, I said it when, when a lot of these laws were being pushed in the spring. I absolutely think they're partisan. Um, after reading, let's see, I, I read almost all of the Texas one, about half of the Georgia one, and bits and pieces of the Florida one. So the Florida one I am the least versed in. Um, but if my memory rings true, then a lot of its uh, implement, implementations... Um, have the very distinct foul smell of the Texas and Georgia laws in which quite clearly paint partisanship as patriotism. Um, and that's ultimately what Democrats and Republicans do at all. They will paint partisanship as patriotism. They will paint delusional fairy tales of we control everything because we're just better than everyone who disagrees with us as as, like, some kind of morally righteous and, and virtuous goal to chase when, quite blatantly, that is a form of despotism. But you see, in their minds, despotism isn't really despotism when they do it. Because so long as you convince yourself that you are of moral majority to everyone around you, you don't have to feel bad if you having power hurts someone because, well, that person is just evil or they're stupid or, or something of that nature. And, and Republicans and Democrats tend to do this quite often, which... Um, I'm sure you'll remember if you've listened to any other podcasts of mine, is that um, I I criticize Democrats quite often for a lot of the rhetoric they throw at Republicans, especially during elections and and during these laws being passed. Like, I don't like this comparison of these Republican election laws uh, to Jim Crow. I think that's a very unfair comparison um, that's only mildly historically accurate at best, Um, because ultimately these these laws that are and are i feel partisan more so than these republicans are willing to say but then again it's, a, it's about a matter of perception. If you don't believe that you having all power is not... If you believe that you controlling everything isn't partisan, well then it isn't partisan. And so if someone says isn't that partisan, you can say no and you're not lying because you don't think that's a lie. But the... I think the, the more objective truth though maybe not the complete objective truth because quite frankly human beings aren't fully capable of, of, of complete objectivity on their own. It takes quite a large group of people to check. And balance each other, which is you know a philosophy that makes the United States government so fantastic because it's nothing but checks and balances. But off that tangent, it, on the on the matter of this law being partisan, the comparisons of it being like oh it's Jim Crow is unfair because nobody because ultimately I I I me I, I tend to judge those kinds of accusations by intent um, because. Jim Crow laws were passed with the intent of restricting minorities from being able to vote. Nobody passing any of these Republican laws was sitting in a dark room rubbing their hands together going, how can we restrict minority voting options today? It was more like, how can we restrict Democrat voting opportunities today? Now, does it just so happen that very many Democrats happen to be minorities? Absolutely. But to say that that it's Jim Crow, Crow to, to compare it to this law that was passed with the, the sole intention of hurting the uh, the enfranchisement of minority voters, I think is an unfair assessment used to scare Democratic voters and maybe even some moderate Republican voters into not voting and not giving power to Republicans. So it's just, I think, as superfluous to say that this is Jim Crow and, and all these other things that Democrats throw at Republicans with these laws as it is to pass them. Um I, and I think that ultimately these texts are very, these text messages and these emails between these officials are are very, um, very, it's very bad news for them because quite clearly th- these messages are, are saying, how can we win? How can we control more? Um, and again, Ultimately, because what my goal is in in talking about this is to help those who may be opposed to the Republicans. I'd like to help humanize them because, again, they don't think they're doing something wrong because in their mind, they are fighting the good fight. Um, that's what both sides of the aisle, that's what all ideologies and parties uh, uh, forthwith think that they are. They, they do truly believe that they are morally superior and intellectually enlightened compared to all of their um, adversaries, um, which naturally we know is incorrect, um, but they don't know that because it's easier to live in this kind of delusional fairy tale um, of tyrants and oppressed and the oppra- of oppressors versus the oppressed so that you can play good guy versus bad guy and always paint people who disagree with you as the bad guy. but the quite the, the truth of the matter is everyone is taking missteps here for personal gain um, and, and because they they believe that their personal gain is some kind of righteous and moral uh, uh, activity. But I think that you'll find the truth is, that it's there's this area of objectivity that exists that we as a species tend to avoid, I think, because we simply are afraid of it. Because that area of objectivity is is very, um shall we say, middle of the road? Uh, not all of that such, it, it's not a very you're right, you're wrong type of thing, because that philosophy philosophy has never truly worked. I mean, when we assess the governments and systems of nations long gone and nations forthcoming, I think we will find often that when you live in this binary dogma of, of good versus evil, you tend to find that that mindset tends to be just a highly misused kind of, um, superficial, uh, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Not trigger word. Maybe trigger word is the word I'm looking for here. It's a philosophy used to, 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 very easily create a a an digestible rhetorical narrative that can be used as a means to ascertain political power um and so I think that that plays a lot into this. so for my people who 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 see this and view this as oh they're absolute monsters, well, they don't think that though that's the issue. and the thing is you can sit there and tell them they are, but you you, you can't approach it with the same kind of anger and res- and 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 um And revenge, kind of, that the Democrats always want to face things with. That kind of needless rhetoric is not only barely historically accurate, it's also super damaging to the political bonds of this country. If we want to change it for the better, you can't just walk up with an axe and chop the system's head off. Or whatever, that's a very strange analogy, so I'll ask you to disregard that. But you... In order to make this a more meaningful change, I would recommend coming at it with a more uh, humanitarian approach, because they truly believe they are the morally superior and intellectually righteous uh, group, and they and that their power is synonymous with the with the um, flourishing of freedom and, and and justice. So they don't see this as an issue. So. You've got to find a nuanced, empathetic way to come to come at these people and say, well, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think you're coming at it with a warped perception of reality that truly only benefits you. And oftentimes what that comes to is you have to kind of not manipulate, but you have to move the, 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 that, those people to a position in which they either have to admit that they're being selfish or, or being desp- despotic to a sense, or simply live in denial, or, or and which, when you face someone with that kind of crossroads, one of two things will happen. They'll either come to terms with it if they are enough of a sensible adult, or they'll break down, um, which, unfortunately, I, I'm beginning to believe may be the only way, truly, to be able to uh, positively affect those types of issues, simply because we live in a society uh, of people that aren't necessarily adults. Um, I, I've mentioned this many times in my Books and in my podcasts in the past, you know, our education system is highly underfunded, which leads to a system that, being very uh, um, archaic and and not very useful for to to strive um, intellect and curiosity and other such things, it it creates an emotionally stunted and um, and and uh, immature society of children that live in old people's bodies. So, which is something I a kind of buzzword I used last week. So, I apologize for that, but I there's a i think a sense of truth to it and so since we live in such a society, you can't just always expect reason to win out, because we live in a society of emotionally stunted and immature people. So, you have to push them to the point where they're going to either have to mature or break down. Now, once people break down, that's where you have to help them get back up to a more mature place, and it's a very fulfilling experience one to help and one to emotionally mature, but you're not going to do that. And how this relates to this is these laws are powered by delusions of ideology, by these fairy tales of tyrants versus patriots, of tyrants that don't even exist. And that's what Republicans and Democrats sell in elections and when they pass laws and when they promote these types of things. They sell to us to the American people, fairy tale tyrants that don't really exist so that we can find some thing to be the evil side and we proclaim ourselves to be the good side and then we attack them. It doesn't matter whether or not people who are innocent and who are good-hearted suffer and, and live in pain because of our policy and our control over the culture of the country, it just matters because they're evil and I'm good. It's a flawed thinking process that creates negative laws like these that will disproportionately hurt people of certain political ideologies and races and other such things depending on the law. And the only way truly to fix it is to grow up and kind of see that reality that uh, a more cohesive solution can, can be made to the issue of, of election reform, but not at the hands of an ideology. It's at the hands of a, of a conjoined people who look to one another with reverence and respect. If we can't do that, then these types of li- bills are impossible to pass, and, uh, and election reform is an issue that is just a complete waste of time. <sighs> um... So, that's that. Conditions at the southern... Well, let me think about this. One, two... Excuse me. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. So, conditions at the southern border have been made so much worse. And the Biden administration... This has been the one thing that since day one, the Biden administration, in my opinion, has done an absolute terrible job on and... Um, it, it's something that has stayed consistently true. While I certainly believe um, Biden's kind of my opinion of Biden has kind of gone like this, um, from the beginning, my opinion on his treatment uh, of the border has been uh, practically worthless. Um, so, it, excuse me, his treatment of the border of the border has been wor- has been worthless, not the opinion. Um, this is from CNN. Standing in swelting Texas sun, Jan- Jameson t- Tilus held both of his children in his arms and described the desperate conditions under Del Rio International Bridge. The 26-year-old Haitian national and his family arrived about a week ago after crossing the Rio Grande River. Getting food has been difficult, Tillis said, and he worries about all the children, including his own, who are exposed to the extreme heat and a storm that rolled through this weekend. We're suffering here, Teal told CNN on Sunday. About 10,000 migrants, including families, pregnant women, and babies, were waiting to be processed by U.S. immigration authorities, according to uh, Del Rio Rio Mayor Bruno Lozano. The number of migrants, many of them Haitian, assembled in the temporary site swelled from roughly 400... 400 a week ago at times the number has topped 14,000 the surge may owe simply a word of mouth and social media that the border the del rio was open u.s. P- border Patrol uh, chief Raul Ortiz has said the migrants sleep in tents are in the dirt surrounded by growing peace, piles of garbage And they wait in hopes of being processed by the overwhelmed U.S. Border Patrol. Few wear masks, despite the COVID-19 pandemic. Video from the scene shows. The heat is oppressive. Temperatures on Monday were predicted to be top 100 degrees. Ten babies have been delivered since Thursday by women transported from under the bridge, a hospital official said. Local authorities are overwhelmed by the crush of people, they said. On top of this, there was some footage released of... Border patrols officials, I guess, whipping people with these cords. Um, now, some of the photos have been exposed as uh, conveniently placed by certain media outlets, but then others actually show that some were whipped. And naturally, that's kind of an idiotic uh, pr- process, I, I in my opinion. Um, because while I certainly believe, well, here's the. Let me let me back up here. So the first things first. The the border being open and and letting people wait on your side while you're processing to come in is a terrible idea, uh, especially when you have very limited resources and it's very hard to get resources to go down. Um, it hardly can ever go from down up because they're too busy trying to focus on migrants to actually get things ready for migrants so that they can have um, a more civilized stay if they're going to wait on our side to be processed, Um, which is actually why, and Tulsi Gabbard said this as well, which uh, I agree with her here, uh, the Trump policy of making people stay on that, on the outside of the United States while being processed is a much better policy for the U.S. border, unless we plan on increasing U.S. Border Patrol funding and giving them enough money to be able to provide resources to create, um, not lavish, but adequate, uh, uh, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Something about living. Adequate resources to, 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 to stay at and live in while waiting to be processed. But I think I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon, because so long as I think the Democrats are in charge, Democrats tend to have a a more than not negative view of Border Patrol. And so they're probably not going to increase funding. So the way I see it, if you're not going to give them the funds to be able to um, house people and give them some kind of dignified place to stay rather than under a bridge, um, then it would be better to keep them on the other side of the border. Um, not to mention, open border policies make it much easier for cartels and gangs and other such things to seep in through the cracks. Now, the thing is, Republicans kind of say that, but they amp it up and make it sound like it's much worse than it usually is. Uh, not to mention that when you talk about uh, people getting across the border, no one ever talks about, like, it's. I think it's 160,000-plus Canadians, undocumented Canadian immigrants cross the northern border every single year, yet that never seems to be an issue for for people, um, and I think that's because perhaps it's more so people there aren't nobody nobody talks about gangs in Canada now. Granted, I'm sure they exist, but um, naturally speaking, I don't think they're that much of a threat. Um, it, they're more of a threat, I think, more so coming from the south, maybe because the government is. Um, it tends to be viewed as a pretty corrupt government in Mexico. That's kind of my perception of it based on what I've seen and what I've heard. Um, that may be true. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. But that tends to be the story that I hear. And so um, when you have powerful connections like that, and when I say corrupt, I mean like they're connected with many of these cartels and gangs in Mexico and in in, in the southern, um, in South America, um, or in the southern tip of North America, tr- truly, Um, it, it's, it just makes it very easy and it makes this whole disaster, um, exactly what it is, a disaster. And the Biden, the Biden handling of it has been, has been a complete failure. First of all, Kamala Harris was put on like, you're the border patrol lady. And all she did was go there, said, good job guys. And kind of left. No, that's not true. She went to, to, um, the Dominican Republic and asked very nicely, pretty please do not come. We saw how well that worked out with, what did they say, 14,000 immigrants? Yeah, that worked out real great for her. It goes to show that um, while an empathetic for no, not foreign policy, while an empathetic border, or sh- er, ex- immigration, not border, while an empathetic immigration policy is... Very, uh, heartwarming and nice and, and, and can work if you do it right. It doesn't work when all you have is thoughts and wishes and, and good hopes for migrants. That just doesn't work. There needs to be a sense of pragmatism to it, uh, Otherwise, you end up with these disasters of people coming across, um, not only creating uh, an instance in which um, COVID cases could potentially surge, but also creating a, a health risk with all types of other diseases when you're, when you're making all these people live under, uh, literally under a bridge. Um, And so I think that um, the handling of it has been a complete disaster because Democrats don't have that same kind of attitude as Republicans tend to have on, um, we, we don't have the resources to keep you here, so you're not going to come in right now. And I think... You've got to have one or the other, first of all. I don't think it's going to work to try and do like a half and half, oh, sometimes you can come in, sometimes you can't, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't work. And I think certainly, in my opinion, when it comes to to Im- comes to the southern border specifically, and I think this should apply to the northern border as well, given that there's some 160,000 Canadian, undocumented Canadian, or maybe it's, no, it's either 600,000 or 160,000. You see, I get numbers wrong all the time. Um... It should apply in every in- instance because it's very unbeneficial for the United States to have tons of illegal immigrants living in the United States um, because they can come and and benefit from the country's um, from the country's bounties, which I think is great. But you shouldn't be able to do that and and not have to contribute to that to that country to that society. Call me old-fashioned. Call me a prude. But I, I believe that if you're going to come somewhere, unless you're coming there as a tourist for a month or two or, and you're leaving, um, then you need to be contributing back to that society. If your goal is to come here and, and live a more stable life, then you need to be able to do it. Now, do I believe our immigration system is perfect and great and shouldn't be changed at all? Absolutely not. I think it's often highly, overly complicated. Uh, it, it's over expensive for people that are coming that with maybe $5 in their pocket and then we're expecting like $170 from them. Um, and I think that it does not need to be open, but it does not need to be um, stupidly strict because w- there's, a, there's a difference between strict and stupidly strict. And I think when you don't differentiate that difference and apply it in a pragmatic but empathetic manner, you then just lead up with, the, with either a crisis of people trying to get across and end up killing themselves doing it, or you just let everyone in, and then you cause all kinds of domestic problems, whether it be related to diseases or cartels or uh, people benefiting from the country and then leaving and all of these other things that just make a, a complete disaster for American citizens and for the American bureaucracy. And I think the Biden handling of the current border crisis has been a complete disaster, and it has been from day one. And that's one thing that Democrats almost never get right. They almost never get the southern border right, because because they're trying too hard to paint themselves out as gods of virtue and, and wisdom, as, as if they are just absolute, the best moral uh, whatever, when the reality is they're, they're that philosophy that they have, that they're applying to the southern border, is highly childish. And, and um, a childish, and I would say, um, what is the word I am looking for? Childish... it's not coming to me. Childish. It's, it's highly, um, there's a word there. (laughs) It's ideal, idealist, that's the other word. Childish and idealist. While it would be idealist to just, you know, be nice to everyone, yay, uh, that, that doesn't work out because, um, ultimately here in the real world, people take advantage of you when you are, Um, that kind of pushover, oh, sure, you can come right in. Who cares, right? Um, And ultimately, people will take advantage of you. Does that mean that the good people who are trying to do everything correctly need to be punished? No, but it does mean that we need to have a more strict policy that either says, listen, we've got the resources for so many people. Let those people in uh, until we process you or stay out until we process you. Um, and ultimately that's why I think Biden has been an absolute failure on the Southern border. And don't even get me started on Kamala Harris. I've always, I, have always despised that woman. She's terrible. She's a, she was a terrible uh, Senator. She's a terrible vice president. She was a terrible presidential candidate. Um, and the idea that she is the second person or she's the first person in line for the presidency, should anything happen to Joe Biden is a terrifying idea. And uh, I easily could think that she would have uh, purposely made sure that she got that position because she's someone who she's like the she's one of those um, people that I would say is exemplary of the delusion of ideological supremacy of the oh Democrats are just fantastic and if we control everything everything will be perfect. She's one of those people that I think truly believes that. Kind of like how I said that about Gavin Newsom last week. Yeah, last week. Um, she's very similar to him in that respect. Um, but what's worse than that is she's not even she's not even good at being a democrat like she's just terrible at everything she does and i cannot wait for the day for her to retire um very strong words i'm aware but she's terrible at her job um you know and i i just don't understand why anyone looks at her and says oh what a great job she's doing um is it like ah oh, there's a woman vice president that's great but if you're going to have a woman vice president it might as well be someone who's actually good at their job i would have much preferred one of the other choices like um Susan Rice would have been a much better choice, in my opinion. Basically anyone but Kamala, I was hoping, would be picked because the rest of those people have proven that they at least either know the bureaucracy well enough to use it well or uh, they showed potential to actually, you know, do their job. Whereas Kamala kind of just flies around on her jet and does virtue signaling at at multiple countries and then comes home and presides over the Senate for two minutes. So I, I don't quite understand what she's doing or what she thinks she's doing. I'd like to remind you one more time to follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at h u g h u y n o a h. That's at Huey Noah. You can also support my show through my books and my merch in the shop section of my website. Um, yeah. There is news of a government shutdown impending, which kind of thanks to political divisions, which creates a sense of pluralism between the previous administration and the current administration. This is from CNNBC. Democrats in Congress scrambled Thursday to beat a string of deadlines that hold massive stakes for both the health of the U.S. economy and President Joe Biden's sweeping economic agenda. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat for California, and Senate Minority Leader, Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, Democrat for New York, aim to work their way out of multiple binds as they try to prevent a government shutdown, a default on U.S. debt, and the collapse of Biden's domestic ambitions. The leaders first find themselves starting... starting staring at a September 30 deadline to pass an appropriations bill before government funding lapses. The White House on Thursday began to advise federal agencies to prepare for the first government shutdown of the COVID-19 era. The administration's Office of Management and Budget is taking steps to let department and agency leaders know that, barring a new appropriations bill, they are expected to execute shutdown plans starting late next week. For many agencies, those plans often include sending workers home. The office typically asks agencies seven days before a government shutdown down to update their plans and will share a draft template each department can use to update government employees on congressional efforts to pass a funding bill and how many workers need to be furloughed. The communication does not reflect the office's views on whether a continuing resolution is likely or not and is viewed as more of a formal duty. Efforts to pass a new budget are underway on Capitol Hill, where House Democrats earlier this week approved a measure to fund the government, spent, suspend the debt ceiling, and approve emergency aid such as disaster relief. That proposal is expected to stall in the Senate, where Republicans are unanimous in their opposition to any bill seeks that seeks to raise or suspend the debt ceiling. Democrats are on, on a tight economic timelines. Some are self impose such as Pelosi's promise to hold a vote on one trillion on a one trillion dollar infrastructure bill or on on or before September 27th um, the Senate has already passed the measure but there are other standing deadlines while Congress must pass a new budget by the end of September to avoid a shutdown lawmakers must also figure out a way to increase or suspend the debt ceiling um, increase the debt ceiling by a to be determined by a be de- by a to be determined drop dead date Treasury officials estimate that the lawmakers have until some point in October before the U.S. default on its debt for the first time. U.S., despite the time crunch, Schumer has promised to take the House past debt ceiling and Government funding bill nonetheless enforced the GOP to publicly vote against a bill that would keep the government open and allow the Treasury Department to continue to pay for legislation Congress has already authorized. Raising or suspending the debt ceiling or borrowing limit does not authorize new federal spending but allows the Treasury to pay for legislation that lawmakers have already passed. An increase would allow the Department to pay off bills associated with the trillions in COVID relief enacted under former President Donald Trump and Biden many suspect that Pelosi will be forced to pass a new resolution without the debt ceiling to keep the government open senate minority leader Mitch McConnell a republican for Kentucky has said on multiple occasions he would su- he would support such a quote unquote clean bill to avoid a shutdown um, what i say earlier on about this when i said this draws kind of a pluralism between the two administrations is that a very similar issue to this to to this, though not exactly the same, was faced in the United States um, Congress twice under President Trump. Uh, I think this one would have been more similarly similar to the... Mm, I can't remember which one. The One of them was highly focused on Trump wouldn't pass a spending bill because they wouldn't uh, put any money in for the wall. And then another one was... I can't remember the other one. It was a very similar situation. Now, where this doesn't draw pluralisms is it's not the president's fault that this is having a hard time going through. What is similar is that the partisanship is making it infinitely harder to even remotely uh, try and fix the issue. And that's kind of something I pointed out in MAGA The Trump Experiment, which is the book I'm referring to, um, which I talk about both the government shutdowns and the Trump presidency. Something I mention when I'm uh, when I talk about it is that it's not just it wasn't just Trump's fault that the thing that the government shut down. It was equal part Trump's fault and the partisanship in Congress that allowed. The shutdown to happen in the first place, because ultimately, again, the delusion of supremacy that only what one side wants is good leads to the leads to these stalemates in which both sides are unwilling to talk to each other, let alone work with each other, to try and do things to keep the lights on in Congress. And so that's something I mention, I think, in both my in my assessment of both government shutdowns, because I think that plays a huge part in very many government shutdowns. Maybe not all of them, and I'm not well versed on all the. Government government shutdowns that have happened in, in U.S. history, so I, I could be dead wrong on, on some of the accusations I'm making here, and I'm willing to take that, but the fact of the matter is I think especially in the Trump presidency, the partisanship of the Democratic versus the Republican Party played a very heavy part into the government into the aspect of the government shutdown. Well, I think it plays more so a part in this one than it does last time because the last time it was equal parts the president's fault and congress's fault. This time I'd put most of the blame on Congress. Um, because Congress just has it has that tendency. To be that kind of irresponsible, ignorant child who thinks that it needs to get exactly what it wants as it wants, it's no discussion, no uh, trade-offs, no no nothing at all. I have to get what I want when I want it right now because I'm better and smarter and more moral than you will ever be. That's the philosophy that Democrats and Republicans always bring, but they're never they never have the guts to even say that part. And so that's what's the most frustrating about issues like these government shutdowns is Democrats and Republicans don't have the guts to admit that it's their partisanship that causes half of these things to happen in the first place. And that's why I tend to talk about moderates as if I see them in some kind of higher light than most Democrats or Republicans. It's because I do, quite frankly. When these so-called spineless moderate Republicans and Democrats say, hey guys, it's our fault these things are happening, that's why I hold those people in usually a higher contempt um, than then someone else, than, then say, Pelosi or Schumer or Madison Cawthorne or, uh, uh, what's her name, Lauren uh, Breit, Brober, Brobert, something like that, the, the lady who w- wore a gun on Capitol Hill or something. It's because those people have that kind, the gut to say, Guys, I think it's our fault this is happening. They refuse to admit that. Every time a government shutdown happened under the Trump administration, both sides tried to like play like that. It's the Democratic shutdown. It's the Republican. It's the Trump shutdown. They play it as a talking point for 2022. Like this like this article said, Pelosi is going to try and force the Republicans to vote no on keeping the lights on so that Democrats can use that as a talking point in 2022 to get re-elected. Everything they do is a reflection of the narcissism that I think is inherent in party politics, and always will be. And the thing is, we can sit here and say, well, this is how it's always going to be, there's no way to change it, blah, 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 blah. But as I believe John F. Kennedy said, our problems are man-made, therefore, they can be solved by man. That's absolutely true. And it takes just a little bit of integrity— and someone who's willing to walk up to America and slap it in the face and say, you're doing it wrong, to get it right. And I don't think our country has really ever had that except maybe once or twice. We got that with Washington uh, as, as president, and we got that maybe with—I'd I, I, hand that to M- Garfield, James Garfield. I think he did that once or twice. But as time has continued— the amount of, of, of and it's not just presidents. I don't know why I went with presidents there. There have been plenty of senators and representatives and such who have done such a thing. But what I mean by all of this is is that we've never had that happen. And so this delusional fairy tale of these overgrown children fighting each other while we, the people, suffer the cost of their impotence, it's very frustrating to see. And all I can hope is that the adults will win the day, and if they don't, then I'm going to wish the best to everyone, and, and just, we will push through it, we will fight through it. Because again, as John F. Kennedy said, our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man. Wholeheartedly believe that. So, even with the ignorance and delusion in this issue, I think that it's very uh, uh, important that we do push the fact that, our, that we can, you know, be a part of the solution. It's just a matter of, do we have the guts to stand up and say, hey, let's fight this thing. Let's do it. Our final piece of news today, Biden's approval rating has plummeted at the wrong time. And in large part, it's thanks to to the independents. Um, Let me make sure our video doesn't play. All right. This is from CNN. CNN Politics, specifically. It's been a very rough last two months for President Joe Biden, plagued by a disastrous end to the war in Afghanistan and the Delta variant of the coronavirus ramp- rampaging through the unvaccinated. Those twin developments have, broad- have badly eroded Americans' view of the president, according to new Gallup numbers released this week. Biden's job approval now sits at just 43%, while a majority, 53%, disapprove of how he has handled his duties. It's been a rapid descent for Biden. As late in June, 56% approved of how he was doing as as late as June, 56% approved of how he was doing, while only 40% disapproved. The decline began in July, 50% approved, 46% disapproved, and in August, roughly the same number approved, 49%, as disapproved, 48%. The decline in Biden's numbers is almost entirely attributed to independence souring on him. In June, 55% of those not affiliated with either party approved of how Biden was handling the presidency. Today, that number sits just at 37%. As Gallup's Megan Brennan notes, two-thirds of Biden's slide among independents, two-thirds of Biden's slide among independents since he took office has occurred in the past three months. Partisans, unsurprisingly, have been remarkably consistent. Roughly nine in ten Democrats approved of Biden's presidency, while single-digit percentage of Republicans feel the same. Biden's struggles of late put him in a company he would prefer not to keep. Only Donald Trump, at 37% among recent presidents, had a lower approval rating at this point of their presidency. Both Barack Obama and George George W. Bush had the approval of a majority of the country in September of their first year in the White House. Biden's polling ebb could not come at a worse time for his presidency. Right now, Congress is embroiled in a series of critical fights, most notably over a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and a $3.5 trillion budget bill, which, taken together, form the crux of Biden's... Biden's entire first term agenda there's also con- cons- consterta- okay read the word consternation and confusion over raising the debt limit and funding the government all of these crises would be man- more manageable if Biden for Biden if he was in a stronger position with the american public if say he was at 55% or even 60% approval Biden's ability to cajole warring moderate and liberal forces in the house would be significantly higher all politicians aware of the leverage, a leverage or lack thereof, that a president has over them, wait, of the leverage or lack thereof that a president has over them and act accordingly. <laughs> um, I'm going to stop there. What this kind of tells to me is so- something I was sort of thinking about when Trump became president. La- the last presidency, and this presidency is continuing it, was a turning point in American politics where every sense of value and, and reason died. Politics has become an incredibly superficial and superfluous place since Trump became president. And Biden is now proof of what I said back in uh, um, November and December— is that this would just be a continuation of that. Sure, it would swing to the radical opposite side, but in terms of the aura, in terms of the stability of American politics, it would stay largely the same due to the fact that our politics has become increasingly stupid. It's become increasingly ignorant. And that's because the efforts of the Democratic and the Republican Party to assert their dominance and to prove to their country and the world that they deserve to control everything, because they're better than you if you disagree with them, that their efforts to double down on that notion have, I feel, gotten worse in the last two presidencies. And Biden, at this point, has proven to me that he's going to live up to that terrible legacy I said he would live up to in the election. He was no better than Trump. The only thing that he's better than Trump at is just not being Trump. (laughs) <laughs> where, where people can choose to believe that our system is just great as it is, that the two-party system is fat, fantastic, that its existence is entirely warranted and justified, that our politics isn't ignorant, I say to you, look at where we are now. If you can honestly look at the way America is now, the way we look at each other The way we talk to each other, the way we interact with other governments, the way we interact with ourselves. How, in any sense, is this government not on the verge of becoming a despotic tyranny? We're reaching the point where people have become so ignorant to the concept that freedom is for all. We don't want people to live by cultural values that we don't approve of because we've been told by politicians and by the media and by speaking heads that we can't, that they're evil, that because they don't want to do what we do, that they are evil. A delusion, a fantasy, operate or artificially created by both parties to, to fight for power. And so while they fight on this, our country becomes more and more disillusioned, and people will end up in two positions. Either they understand just how terrible it is, but they become disillusioned and go, well, this is it, I'm over, I'm just going to block everything off and just accept everything is bad, I'm just going to stop and, and be angry at the world and be a miserable hack, and then I'm going to die that way, and that's just how it's going to be. Or you become one of the people that gets trapped into that ignorant ideological box of predetermined narratives and rhetoric that turns you into a brainless pawn for the power of the ideology. That is currently what's happening in America and to American citizens, and that's what Republicans and Democrats and what any party would rely on to to keep power. That's what they've relied on for 245 years, is for the American people to be just as ignorant and selfish as they are. And they're going to keep it that way because that's how you keep power in America. It's not by, it's not by trusting in, in, in the institutions. It's not by being honest. It's about, it's about lying and manipulating people to be just the same kind of despot as you are and telling people that if you see, I don't know, a Muslim. And you see them living by Muslim cultural values. Well, they're evil, you see? Because I don't like them. If you see someone who owns 15, who owns, I don't know, 10 AR15s, well, we see they're evil, because I don't like AR15s. They're evil, so they should have them taken away because they're evil. And if they say that's entrenching on their rights, well, they're just wrong because they're evil. If you see someone who is struggling with the com- with the massively complex and very interesting, though very contested issue. Of someone who who was born a male, it says I, I don't. I feel like a female. Don't have a conversation with them. Don't investigate their mind. No, crush them. Tell them they're evil. Destroy them because they don't want to do what you want to do. That's what our politics has become—an ignorant game of despots looking to find out new ways to force our de- our de- our de- excuse me our democratic country to become that of a tyranny, because political ideologies are incapable of running free and fair democracies, because to them, freedom is synonymous with their total power. It's a delusion that has been perpetrated by every ideology and party known to man since the dawn of man. And while we could become disillusioned and say that, well, there's nothing we can do, they hold all the power, they hold all the glory, so we should just... We should just buckle down and stick with it and just try and fight it that way. I say no, sir. History isn't made by doing what you're told. History isn't made by not being actively opposed to the systems and agencies by which deteriorate the value of your democracy, of your republic. The way in which you make history and change your country and your world for the better is by actively standing up and shouting, announcing to the heavens, that that is wrong, and we should stop empowering it. So let's do it. People say, well, it's, it's, it's no use. It's no use. Once again, John F. Kennedy said, our problems are man-made. Therefore, they can be solved by man. And boy, can this problem be solved by man. All it takes is not voting for them. Oh, but we can't do that, because if you don't vote for a Republican or a Democrat, all you're doing is voting for the other side who doesn't win. WRONG! That's a stupid thing to think! And it's perpetrated, who would have guessed, by Republicans and Democrats running for office take the power you have as a person as the people of this democratically of this democratic republic republic take your power as a member of this society and use it to deconstruct this rhetorical ridiculous narrative that if a two party system exists it's fantastic because it's not And that's why so many people hate their president now, because their president has become a delusional crazy person who thinks that if my party isn't in control, freedom is dead. We need to destroy that narrative and reassess the value of a political system by which only empowers people who think like that. This is a democratic republic. All people deserve to feel and think that they have had said a voice have set, have had a said in their government can't speak people deserve to, th- to think that and to have that opportunity but you can't have that when your political system by and large completely benefits one or two ideologies that are able to manipulate and, and exploit the hopes and dreams and fears of enough people and we have the potential now to take this 200-year Goliath of a system and smash it. And we should do that because we are the people. This is not Democrat country. This isn't Republican country. This isn't Libertarian country. This is not Communist country, Capitalist country, Black, White country, Gay, Straight country. It doesn't matter. This is a country of the people and the people deserve individually on a local state and federal level to have some kind of power in the in the extra, in the ex, excuse me in the expedites of their government and the first thing that i would recommend we do as a uni, as a unified people which biden has failed to do is destroy this useless system of political parties and the only thing we have to do to do that is to stop voting for democrats and republicans even when they're bad candidates If you think someone who isn't in one of the two major parties is a better candidate than everyone else, vote for that person. Advocate for that person. Because this whole, what we have to do, vote for the people that are already in power, that clearly doesn't work. Because the system has not gotten better since we've done that. So let's stop believing in that stupid lie and and come to grips with the fact that if there is someone who is better, if there is an option that is better, let's do that. Because this doesn't work. And I think that if we have any conscience, if we have any care for each other's freedoms, for the freedoms of ourselves, if we care, not, if, if we care for the freedom and security of the American people now and forever to be secured and, and protected at every point in American history and in the history of the world, And if we care for those values to be shared with the world, the only way in which to do that is to, as rational, civilized citizens, engage in discussions and take control of our power. And that means voting for people you believe in because of your principles, not because of the power they have. We cannot continue to be a country bullied by these ancient, archaic, overgrown children just because they think they have power let's hit them where it really hurts their ego and their pride and I guarantee you we could thrust ourselves as a unified people into a better age but we can't do that right now and I, I only hope that we will one day because the, the course at which the United States is moving currently is one that leads to another China and I know that one thing that we can all agree on is that none of us want to be like that. But what we have to come to terms with is if our partisanship continues to get worse, and if we continue to uphold the system that promotes that type of partisanship, then we likely will become like them. And I think that we have the power, we have the presence, and I think we have the faith in, each, in ourselves and in each other. We can and will make the country a better place. And that's my final take for this week. Thanks so much for listening in. It's been a pleasure to have you. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. Uh, once again, make sure to follow my Instagram. That's at Noah. That's at H-E-G-H-E-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Noah. And if you'd like to, support my show through my merch or my books in the shop section of my website. Thanks so much for listening in, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.